0: Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge, where we keep you up to date with what's going on in Israel so you can feel connected and hopefully give you a little insight behind what you read in the headlines. I am Michael Unterberg and I am here as always with my co-host Alan Goldman. Hi Michael. Uh,
1: We are also here at least briefly with Matt. How's it going, Matt? Hi, good morning everybody. Nice to be back in the uh, podcast.
0: I think you're going to have to ditch out of the Teacher's Lounge a little bit early, but we wanted you here to introduce our guest.
1: That's right. This being the teacher's lounge, I do actually have to go and teach, but I would like to introduce you this morning. So you're saying that your job
0: isn't just occasionally appearing on the podcast? That's not your entire career at
1: this point? Fortunately for me, I get to actually uh, interact with students as well as wonderful colleagues. Um, So this morning, we're very honored and privileged to have with us Dr. Toby Green. Toby is a postdoctoral fellow at the Hebrew University right now. He lectures um, on all sorts of issues related to the Middle East, Uh, particularly the Israel and Palestinian conflict. And in fact, Toby has even published a book called Blair, Labour and Palestine. And you can purchase that book on Amazon if you would like to do so. Thank you, Toby.
2: Thank you very much. How are you doing, Toby? I'm uh, great, thank you. It's nice to be with you.
0: So Matt just gave you a very nice formal introduction, but I hope that doesn't give you the misimpression that this is like a a proper British conversation. (laughs) It's pretty... yeah, we're we're a little we're a little less uh, proper than Matt, I think.
2: No, that's fine. We'll do this as, uh, uh, Anglo-Israeli style. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Nobody's wearing a tie this morning, so it's okay.
0: I can't remember the last. Le- oh no, I do remember the last time I wore a tie. It was at my daughter's wedding, like five years ago. Alan, how about you? Me, I don't wear ties. Good man.
3: Yeah. I don't want to cut off my head from my heart.
0: (laughs) Spoken like a true chassid who wears a gartel. Uh, Wow, that was a a deep cut, dumb joke. Toby, can you tell us (laughs) a little bit about what what your area of expertise is, what you study, what you write about, what you teach about?
2: Sure. Uh, In terms of my research, um, I'm currently focused on a couple of things. One is foreign policy decision making, how foreign policy decisions get made. By governments and leaders. Another uh, is a more specific area, which is about European foreign policy and how European political attitudes are shifting with respect to Israel and the Middle East. My teaching area is slightly different, or uh, on aspects of that, I teach two courses at the Hebrew University. One is um, a course on the Israeli Palestinian conflict, which I teach to politics students, politics undergraduates at the Hebrew University, mainly. Um, mainly Israeli students some international students my Israeli students are mainly Israeli Jews I have also some Israeli Arabs in my class um, and I also teach a course to international students on Israel the West and radical Islam and I've written about Israeli-Palestinian conflict and published on that also uh, in the past So that's kind of within my research area also
0: so before we get to that area for our discussion can you can you just tell us why you live in Israel you don't sound like you were born here
2: no, uh, I made Aliyah, uh eleven years ago uh, with my wife. Why am I here? That's a that's a difficult question. I find, in particular, when taxi drivers tend to ask it, they sort of ask it like uh, they ask it in the sense of what What are you doing here?" <laughs> you isn't came that, a, from isn't the UK that a little bit depressing to... <laughs> when Sabras say that to you? Uh, like they talk but, to you like um, you're crazy? Right. And then sometimes I, I think maybe I am crazy. But the answer is I, I um was deeply committed to Israel. Um, I um spent a gap year here uh with FZY, which is a British youth movement, which is twinned with Young Judea, for those Americans that know that, uh on the year course program. And try as I might I couldn't get Israel out of my system. Um and uh I'd always been thinking about spending more time here and then uh, I fell in love with a girl that was absolutely committed to moving to Israel, so we decided to come to here for a year and see how it went. That was 11 years ago, uh, and we're still here. And for me, it's very much, uh, yeah, it's an ideological and political engagement with the place um, that, that brought me here. And, um, and uh, yeah, so it's, a, it's a fascinating life being here.
3: And you did all your academic work in Israel?
2: uh, No, I I was already in my late 20s. By the time I got here, I was an undergraduate at Cambridge where I studied philosophy and theology. And I worked um, in politics in the UK uh, as a parliamentary researcher in the House of Commons and for a British organization called Labour Friends of Israel, which is like a pro-Israel campaign group in the British Labour Party. And then I moved to Israel. And I did my PhD. I was actually at UCL in London for my PhD, but physically I was here most of the time.
1: Uh-huh. The maybe uh, just a question about your your experience. You said you worked for the Labour Friends of Israel. Obviously, at the moment, for those following the news in Britain, uh, the Labour Party has had some recent accusations about anti-Semitism and anti-Israel bias and things like that. Uh, did you experience any of that while you were working uh, working there? N-
2: not in that sense. It was a very different Labour Party when I was in the UK. It was a Labour Party led by Tony Blair, uh, and the entire sense of gravity in the party was very much to the right. Um, I mean, the grassroots of the party was much more to the left of the leadership at that time. But nonetheless, um, no, the the, the 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 it's a shift. It's a it's a very troubling shift. But no, it, I, I mean, uh, I experienced uh, hostility towards Israel. Uh, without a doubt, um, it never, in my experience, manifested itself in the kinds of anti-Semitic terms that we do unfortunately see today in among some uh, Labour Party activists. Now, I'm afraid it's it's a worrying shift or something that's really re- reared its head in recent years. Um, and especially with the um, with Jeremy Corbyn coming from the radical left wing of the party and bringing many of his supporters into prominent positions, it's. Um, and making that wing of the party much more prominent, that has really uh, brought this into the open.
0: Why is it that the left, that the farther left, the more, I mean, you use the word hostility to Israel, which isn't the same really as being critical of Israel. What, what is it that the further left you go, it, it, it goes from criticism to hostility? Criticism, I understand that, you know, you can always criticize things from your perspective. But where does the hostility come from?
2: It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex story. Uh, there are a lot of elements in it. Some of them are covered in my book, which Matthew uh, kindly mentioned earlier. I did my, my PhD research on the British Labour Party and Israel. I was focusing much more on the policy aspects whilst Tony Blair was the leader of the party. But um, there are um, deep, uh, a, a wide range of ideological positions within the Labour Party. The left of the party remains uh, heavily influenced by radical left marxist views there is a long tradition of anti-zionism on uh on the far left um uh, which sees uh, uh zionism as a um uh in, in in a negative form of nationalism that also um is influenced by some uh, anti-semitic tropes that have deep roots on the left going back to marx but in the, uh, the, the, a lot of this gets its um, uh, energy uh, these days sort of emerging in the late 1960s, a new left movement which associates Zionism with uh, American uh, global power, uh, sees Israel as an agent um, of, uh, uh, of uh, negative U.S. neo-imperialist influence um and uh um so a lot, a lot of it these days is 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 uh is connected to that also um that it has deep roots in 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 um uh in in certain aspects of uh, of leftist thinking um and uh yeah if you look at corbyn's own political history he's the current leader of the labor party he has a long history of radical left views and they include uh a uh, uh overt hostility towards zionism which is perceived to be a racist, uh, colonialist ideology. And the Palestinians are seen as, um, as sort of the, the uh, anti-colonial liberate, national liberation movement, a very just anti-colonial liberation movement, fighting against uh, uh, sort of imperial Zionism, which is sort of an agent of Western imperialism or, or neo-imperialism. So if you have a, 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 a worldview, leftist worldview like that, that's the, ten- that's the way you tend to frame the Israeli-Palestinian uh, conflict, and uh, um, uh, as I say, when I was an activist in the Labour Party, you know, it was led by Tony Blair, who didn't have, that didn't share that worldview. But uh, today, it's led by Jeremy Corbyn, who at least comes from that worldview in his background. although it's important to note that there has been some moderation of his position, and the Labour Party, the Parliamentary Labour Party, still encompasses a wide range of views.
0: Because as he takes power, he has to move towards the middle to hold the coalition, or.
2: Well, I mean, he, he's as he's taken leadership of the Labour Party, there's been some tacking towards um, a position which can keep the unity in the party. Right. Uh, so yes, that's an element of it. And also, um, I think a realisation now that uh, especially since the last general election that we had in the UK a few months ago, that suddenly something that seemed impossible until quite recently, the idea that Jeremy Corbyn might actually lead a Labour government now looks like it's an actually a, a could be a possibility and that forces i think all leaders to consider the actual dilemmas and challenges that are involved with holding power so it's okay when you're in permanent opposition and you're you know you're on the margins even of your own party uh, as corbyn was for so many years to basically be very oppositional and take very radical positions but when you actually might find you, you could actually be in government and have to make actual decisions things look a little different
0: oh i wish that were true <laughs> <laughs> He's certainly not seeing that necessarily in the world today, people taking power and then moderating.
2: But I but just I, to give, uh, one concrete example on the Israeli-Palestinian <laughs> issue, which is that Corbyn, who was somewhat ambivalent about a two-state solution and Israel's right to exist in the past, is now is since become leader, becoming leader of the party, has become explicitly committed to a two-state solution. And therefore, Israel's right to exist in a future final status agreement, which he was not clear on. before. Before. So so it remains very hostile and and critical of Israel. That's a shift.
0: So I stepped on and crushed your first segue to this topic, and now you've you've, uh, given (laughs) us another one, thankfully, (laughs) so that I stop being distracted. Um, Talk about teaching, you you know, in academics, I assume you're supposed to at least attempt to create some sort. How do you teach about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict with any sort of objectivity? How is that academically possible? When everything is so is so uh, uh, colored by perspective,
2: um, it, it, the first answer I, thought, I think to that for me is to acknowledge explicitly that challenge in the classroom, and that is particularly important for me when I'm teaching a class which is um, two thirds of it, which is Israeli or Israeli Jews, Israeli Jewish undergraduates a handful of whom are Arab students, Israeli Arabs or East Jerusalem Arabs, um, and the rest are international students. So um, given that the majority of the people in the room have a deep personal connection to the issues, what I say to my students in the, one of the things I say to my students in the first, uh, in the first class is um, it's not like we're, we're studying this subject in uh, Cambridge or in um, london or in uh china where some of my students come from or the netherlands we were studying it in jerusalem and we are all many of us or the most of us have a, have a personal connection to this issue and we can't um cut, cut ourselves off from our own personal histories and perspectives and that includes me as the lecturer but Um, Our goal in the class is to try and understand the conflict, understand what the conflict is about, why we have a conflict and what drives it. And to do that, uh, we need to be able to step back from our own personal perspectives and try and understand it as objectively uh, as we can. By acknowledging that we are inherently, most of us inherently connected to the issues personally, that will help us to step back from our own perspectives
1: uh toby i i have to leave shortly as we said before to go and teach but mm. i just would like to leave ask one question before I, I leave yeah um do you believe that your colleagues in the faculty of political science there um or your colleagues also share that um that uh, perspective with their students and they give the same kind of uh um i don't know what the word is the same kind of introduction to the courses with their students or you think you're unique in doing that
2: you know, it's an, it's an excellent question. And I, I really don't know. It's it's a funny thing. I, I haven't sat in my colleagues' classes and I haven't really discussed it very much, um, which now you say it is a little surprising to me. Um, maybe it's something that we should discuss more. The truth is, lecturers are given surprising amount, I guess, of um, of academic freedom. It's a very strong principle in the university. I mean, my, my course and my syllabus has to be approved by an academic committee. But beyond that, um, you know, it's good luck. Um, and, uh, so, um, um, I have a freedom to do what I, I, I want to do in my classroom. I make those, I, I take the stand that I take because I think it's principled, uh, a position both as a teacher and as a scholar. Um, what my, I, I, what my colleagues do, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, the principle of academic scholarship is that you, you know, you make arguments based on reason and and, and facts and evidence. And that should uh, dictate the work of all scholars. But of course, personal opinions and attitudes ca- come into play. So I, I hope that my, my, co- my colleagues take a similar approach, but I, I don't know. I haven't checked.
3: So I guess I guess that that leaves me with that. I mean, I actually actually have the same discussion with my students, but I kind of end up with like, I can't get out of a Zionist. I, I'm a Zionist. So I can't pretend not to be a Zionist when I'm teaching
2: so I I don't uh, I mean listen they they know that I am a British Jew that made Aliyah so my own story is not exactly hidden and it shouldn't be either right. uh, but I um, uh, I do believe there are there are um, historical facts um, so that uh, we, that we should be able to agree on wherever we're coming from okay the text and the date of the Balfour Declaration is a historical fact um, uh, you know and. I, Th- those we can we should be able to build our understanding of what the conflict is about uh, on historical facts, not only you know, documents and texts, but sociological facts, demography, geography, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of things that we, we should be able to, to address as as facts. Um, uh, and then you- we also have. Say so, yeah. Go ahead, go ahead. And, and, and then we also have our own our own perspectives. One of the things I say to my students is um, it's OK to bring your experience as evidence. In the classroom, it's in you know we're collectively, and I try to make it somewhat something of a collective exercise. We're we are together trying to understand the Israeli Palestinian conflict, its background, its drivers, um, whether it's resolvable, how it might be resolvable. We're trying to do that as a as a scholarly endeavor together. That's that's our task in 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 the classroom. So your your own personal experience as Israelis uh, uh, or people living here. Uh, is maybe not be relevant. I mean, many of them would have served, for example, in the IDF. Um, uh, you know, or are not just living in Israel as Israelis, whether it's Jews or Arabs, they have personal experiences, family experiences, their own backgrounds are intimately related to what we're what it is we're studying. Right. So I tell you... So this-
3: that so? Isn't that like that's I that's sort of my saying. So the way we can agree on the facts at times, but isn't that the narrative we put around the facts?
2: Isn't that influenced by our? where we're coming from? So, so I would say th- three things. First of all, I tell them to be critical. I, I, I tell them to read critically everything that they read, uh, including me as the lecturer. They're entitled to read me critically and the choices that I make and the readings that I suggest to them and the, things, the facts that I present to them. Everything is, has to be, you have to be selective. And, uh, uh, and I encourage them to read everything critically from whichever perspective. One of my goals in the course explicitly when i you know they, they're on their syllabus it lists the the student outcomes for the course one of the outcomes is that they should be able to read critically people speaking you know where, from whichever side they should be able to uh, um uh critically analyze what they're hearing from whichever side it's it's coming from so that's one of the explicit goals of the course for me just to sort of uh, sort of round off what i was saying before about i tell about their own personal experience i tell them it's okay to bring your personal experience into the classroom in the sense of that's data that's evidence from a scholarly perspective so your own experience of uh, uh, uh your family background your personal history of living in israel so you can use the word i you can say from my experience i experienced x and that's data that tells me something about the conflict i tell them i don't want them to use the word we I tell them not to use the word we with respect to Israelis, Jews, Arabs. There's no we in the classroom, okay? which means that I want them to step back from their identity. They're they're entitled to bring their experience, but I want them to step back from their identity. I want them to use their own experience as data, but to analyze the conflict from an objective perspective, not as a Jew, not as an Arab. Not as somebody who comes from a third country, which may also be intimately connected, like Germany, for example. So what do you, um, want them,
3: so what do you have to say in class, like practically the Israelis or the Arabs? or Yes,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And I try to use uh, neutral language when I talk about the conflict. So I, yesterday I taught uh, the, or, the origins of the Palestinian refugee problem. And I uh, explained, I used the term, the first Arab-Israeli war or the war of 1947-48. Because ah. to Jews that's the War of Independence, okay? Right. That's Milhemet uh, Atzmod, okay? And we celebrate it as Jews, Yom Atzmod, and that includes me. But for Arabs, that's Nakba, that's the catastrophe. Okay, so I use, I try to use a neutral term when I talk about the territory itself. I typically find myself saying Palestine slash Eretz Israel. Uh-huh. Okay, that's a, that's neutral language with which to address. Well, see, the but conflict. that's
0: the thing. It, it's not neutral to say Palestine slash Eretz Israel. In other words. I guess, I, guess, and I'm, I guess I'm sort of echoing Alan's question. I can understand how to assemble two different narratives from the facts that are agreed upon. But I wonder if you can really create a neutral, a truly neutral narrative. Or at some point, do you have to acknowledge that there are two ways of looking at it? So saying Palestine slash Eretz you've you've created a hybrid of two narratives to create a neutral term, but you can't create a single
2: name and I'm just using that as as an example.
0: So doesn't so that happen that,
2: time and again? So you've hit on exactly the crux crux of the problem. I, I agree with you, but it's not a problem for me, it's the solution. The 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 the, the, the meta theme of my course, the, the uh, 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 let's say the underlying theme which runs through my course is that in order to understand this conflict if we're studying the conflict as scholars, if our task is to try and understand the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, what it's a conflict about, what drives it, etc., you have to understand the perspectives of two conflicting parties. Okay, that's that's core to understanding the conflict. If you cannot understand why uh, Palestinians regard 1948 as their catastrophe, then you cannot understand what the conflict is about. That's fundamental to me. If you cannot understand why It's the war of independence for Jews and their moment of triumph and liberation, then you you can't understand what the conflict is about. So if you don't understand both of those perspectives, it doesn't mean that there are no facts. I believe there are facts, but those facts have different implications for the two two, uh, populations, the two national groups who are the parties to this conflict. So Very you can't interfaces. so you
0: can't really have a neutral understanding but an objective understanding is one that 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 allows itself to understand both perspectives in the conflict
2: probably the word neutral is not right but I think you can have a balanced understanding okay ah, I think you can have an understanding which integrates uh, which reflects uh, an a um, an understanding of both sides and how they view. Uh, the situation like and the I word objective you, you don't like you don't like
0: the word neutral you don't like the word objective
2: i th- listen i think there are objective facts right so I, i'm not a, i'm not i do use the word objective in my classroom I, I think i use the objective word objective when i say to the students you should aspire to objectivity you should try to l- understand the facts uh, as they are and try to understand uh, try to take a position from which you can view which you can understand simultaneously. Both of the competing narratives. I, I wrote about this once in, a, in an article and I, I uh, made an analogy to a stereogram. Do you remember those stereogram things? You know, those kind of fuzzy pictures. Yeah. you, you have to kind of look at them, them for a little cross eyed. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah then you get a headache, but if you get, do it right, some kind of 3D image kind of pops out at you. And they do it by overlaying uh, the same image uh, hidden in that kind of mess of stuff sort of slightly, you know, t- two versions of the image slightly separated. And if you look at it in a certain way, you'll, this image pops out at you. So I, I, I liken understanding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict to that, basically. If, you're, if you can avoid getting a headache and going <laughs> cross-eyed, if you can simultaneously uh, understand or grasp the conflict, how it's seen from the two different conflicting parties – then the image comes out at you in 3D. Then you understand what the conflict is about. Okay? And as I say, it doesn't mean that there are no objective facts or, you know, that's not what I'm saying. But in order to understand what the conflict is about, what drives it, you have to be able to grasp simultaneously and to some extent, I think, empathize with the national narratives of two competing national claims to this territory.
3: So I have about 20 million different questions I'd like yeah, to ask too. you, but I'll try and. So
0: first of all, we're glad, just you, listeners, we're glad you're tuning it, tuning into this eight hour episode of today's <laughs> podcast.
3: So I guess the, I want to ask a real practical thing in terms of your students. Do, do you find that you're able to do that? And do you find your your Israeli students are able to see that 3D picture and your Arab students? And I'm less concerned about the international, quite honestly.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um. I think so. Uh, It's difficult. Listen, I have I have a large class, you know, I have around 50 students typically in my room, which makes it difficult to engage and really get to know the thinking of each individual student. At the end of the day, the test comes when they submit their final papers. Um, So it's hard to say. I I, I think so. Um, A tactic, a technique that I've been I've been experimenting with this semester is um, presenting the students with difficult questions. Um, and asking them to vote uh, on them in the classroom using a, a, a piece of technology that a bit like Kahoot, if you've ever seen that, where you can vote on your mobile phone and it kind of pops up on the screen. Right. Uh, how many people voted for which option. So, um, what, do then, so what
0: do you use for that? What, soft, what uh, web platform are you using? Uh,
2: it's something that um, the Hebrew University has provided to its lecturers. It's called Participol, mm-hmm. uh, and it integrates with PowerPoint. Mm hmm. So that's the tool that I've been using. So, um, for example, um, you know, I, I, you can ask them a, a question that, that's, you know, a, a question which is disputed in the study of the of the conflict. That's uh, by the way that I think that the perspective of the, this is a conflict with with two peoples and two conflicting perspective. You know, narratives. I think is is a broad theme in the broader literature. It's not not just something I attribute to myself. You know, I think if you look at the literature. Uh, and scholarship on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, this is and an understanding the conflict. I think that's a general theme in, in the scholarship. But many of the questions, of course, are, are very disputed. So, for example, you know, uh, if you're asked to assess the responsibility of the conflicting various parties to the birth of the Palestinian refugee problem, which I mentioned earlier, you know, you might, you might know, primarily blame the Jewish side. You might primarily blame the Arab side. You might primarily blame third parties. You might think it's sort of, uh, you know, shared responsibility. There are different options, different arguments you can take, and you'll find those different arguments in the literature. And of course they're deeply linked to the national claims and narratives of the two sides so they're highly politicized also. So I asked the students to, to vote on the, that kind of a question then to debate with one another and then um uh, so i you know try to make sure that all the different perspectives and the different arguments are all articulated in the classroom and i encourage the students to engage with one another and listen you know to engage with somebody that that took an, a, a view that's different from theirs um the other thing i do is when they write their essays is i insist that um when they um write a paper on a specific topic that they must show a understanding of a range of perspectives and viewpoints, even if they are arguing a particular line. Um, let's say they wish to argue that the, um, that the uh, birth of the Palestinian refugee problem or the ongoing Palestinian refugee problem, is, lies entire, the blame lies entirely with the Palestinian uh, Arab side of the story. Um, they could argue that case and get a good grade on my essay. But it, on my in my course, but if they don't in their in their paper, engage with the arguments from the other side, if they don't engage with why people might argue that, that in fact, largely or to at least some considerable degree, Jewish Zionist responsibility for the birth of the, an ongoing Palestinian refugee problem, if they don't engage with that argument, at least to say, this is what people would argue from an, from the other side of this argument. This is why I reject those arguments based on facts and reasoning. Then they won't get a good grade in my in my course. So, so they're entitled to take a view if they argue it effectively. They could take either view, but they do need to acknowledge and engage. As long as it reckons with,
0: with the diversity of opinion.
2: Yeah, and, and makes a good case as to why they reject the other side. So I,
0: I don't want to use the word we, but I, I will say that I, at least anecdotally, from both, you know, partially from perusing the media, but more from just talking to students who are out in the, you know, in the world of universities. And I think Alan's had the same experience. The feedback we're getting is that in many academic institutions, students are not being taught the conflict as these are two dueling narratives and uh, they're, they're taught a single narrative, and it's usually not the Israel Zionist perspective. Do you think that's an accurate read of what's going on in the academic world? And, and if so, why do you think that is?
2: I don't know. I haven't done a, a, a survey of it. I don't know if anybody's really done a survey of it. I did bring my students yesterday. Uh, I showed them an example of uh, Ilan Pape's book. Um, you know, as as I say, the topic was the topic was the you know the, the the origins of Palestinian refugee problem, and I you know I showed them Benny Morris, I showed them Shabtai Tevet, I asked them to read those, and I I also brought so these them a are quote. all
0: historians of that period who have You're right and I, yeah, different perspectives. Where, where would you put them? I would say you know Morris tries to be as perspectiveless as possible, but Pape has very much taken the the right. anti-Zionist narrative.
2: Yeah, so pa- Pape, who was a lecturer at Haifa University, is now at an ex-university in the UK. So the, the, let's say, you know, those Israeli historians I mentioned, they they, are, they, they they you know, certainly disagree with one another, but they both kind of engage with the sort of complexity. Um, and it's certainly, when you read Morris, it's, it's you know, you agree or disagree, and you know, it's certainly a complex picture, according to Morris. Um Elan Pape literally writes in his book, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, this is not complicated at all. You know, this is the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. It was a war crime by the Jews. That's the whole story, um, which is a very unnuanced perspective, such as that, you know, you might might be reflected in, in what you were suggesting. So I don't know what Elan Pape teaches in this classroom. I don't know if he's more nuanced in his classroom than he is uh, in, in that book. Um, so, But certainly it suggests that there are, Uh, um, uh, academics out there who are doing what you're what you're suggesting. But I don't know. Uh, You know, there is also there is a growing sort of
0: are you you experiencing? I mean, it's certainly spoken about that way, but I I, I rarely like to rely on sort of commonly held assumptions. But the feedback I get from my students is sometimes very shocking. Absolutely. But again, we we
3: generally get the feedback from the students that are shocked, not from the other. You know, I mean, right. It's certainly
0: out there. So I'm not, I'm, the not, I'm, not, I'm not talking who, about percentages or amounts, but my students yeah. are hearing some pretty radical one sided presentations yeah. of the conflict. Some of them are.
2: Yeah. And so, certainly you hear those complaints from the UK as well. I just don't know how representative they are of, you know, all, all courses on in the Middle East or Arab Israeli conflict. I, I right. mean, I think there is Listen. I think I'm there certainly is not hearing
0: than, that people are presented one sided Zionist presentations. In academia no no listen I'm i think getting the, that feedback at
2: all no i think i think the broad concern certainly if in, in the uk which is obviously where that a place i know best aside from israel is that there is a, a you know it's clearly a, a, a you know a left-wing um bias in academia generally and a and a uh, and a pro-palestinian slant obviously you would expect in middle east studies but i think it also depends on the field Middle East studies—you you might expect to have an Arab orientated perspective. Uh, other fields, um, you may, it may be slightly, it may be slightly different. So, um, you know, I say I, 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 uh, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but I can't verify it based on a kind of uh, um, uh, researched a uh, uh, survey.
0: But you would attribute it to the same because professors in universities or lecturers tend to lean towards the political left, it goes back to what you were saying about Jeremy Corbyn, that there's this anti-colonialist, anti-Zionist perspective that ends up being,
2: appearing in academia more than... than so never. look, I, I say, it's, I'm, I'm not an expert on, on, on this. Um, there are some very interesting, uh, there are some interesting, very people doing some very interesting work on this. For example, um, there's a wonderful edited volume on, on BDS in academia, um, um, uh, so that, that people can people can uh, read on on this subject. I think there is certainly a general perspective that academia leans politically to the left. I think that's kind of widely accepted, and that may account for a broad, um, you know, or uh, say a generalized um, suspicion or hostility towards Israel. But then, when, then when you come to Middle East studies, you know, people that are experts in the Middle East, you know, generally speaking. Experts in the Arab world and speak, you know, learning and speaking um, uh, that language Um, and uh, therefore would be more seeped in that in that perspective. Um, However, you know, perhaps people who are teaching the the subject from the perspective of international relations or security studies may have different perspectives. Um, I know many other fields, there is great fascination and interest in Israel. Um, um, My wife, for example, teaches. Um, uh, 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 is a researcher and lecturer in public, me- in public health and one of the things she's an expert in is military mental health and for uh, scholars in military mental health Israel is a fascinating case study uh, they're, they're, they're uh, very very interested in Israel and very keen to collaborate with Israelis so it may depend on the field
0: Alan okay. we're running low on time do you want to try to squeeze in a couple more questions you take one off uh-huh. the day. Because I, I, I I'm I want. curious in your own personal life, uh, d- did you feel that in your Jewish education that Israel was taught in a way that you looking back feel was done well? Or do you feel like Jewish educators need to – where do you think Jewish education needs to do a better job when teaching Israel?
2: Again, I guess I, I've been in Israel now 11 years, so I'm slightly detached from how uh, British Jews, the country I come from, uh, are, are studying Israel today. I think there are some, there do seem to be some gaps compared to what I got. You know, when I when I was 18, I, I came to Israel on a gap year and, and studied on the Machon Mahon, Mahon al-Madukhul, which was a famous program, and... Um, uh, with a great reputation and very high educational um, uh, uh, standards and great and great lectures. I just think less and less people are coming on those kind of gap year programs from the UK for all kinds of reasons, cost and, and all kinds of you know, other, other reasons. So um, uh, I think that, um, you know, whereas the leaders of youth movements such as myself uh, when I was at that stage had that um, a very strong bedrock that came from spending a year here and studying on a very rigorous academic uh, uh, was not a you know, not a university program, but a very um, rigorous uh, um, educational program. program. Yeah, and and that and that got passed down, you know, as madrachim down to and through the movement. Um, I think there are less that's uh, lesser uh, um, uh, there, there are less people participating in that kind of way. Uh, on the other hand, there are many more. Uh, british jews who are attending jewish schools so they're getting educational content there but you know i think there's a dilemma also between um as you guys know between teaching israel advocacy and teaching israel uh in depth uh and 3d and acknowledging its 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 challenges and how we uh teach how we prepare um uh, young Jews in the diaspora to both engage with and love Israel, but also to be, have a realistic picture of Israel and all its challenges, which will enable them to be able to cope with hostile things they may hear about Israel when they encounter them uh, in university. And I'm not sure that that, that balance has, has been got right yet. Um, and it takes, as we all know, an enormous investment of time and energy to gain even a basic understanding of what's going on here. And um, I'm not sure it's it's very difficult to get to get young people to do that.
0: That's the truth. I think it's a great articulation, though, of the goal of you want them to be passionate and love and feel connected to Israel, with that 3D understanding that allows them to have a mature relationship with Israel rather than just sort of a romantic idealized version. Right.
3: I, I like that. I like that 3D visual. We like to say an adult relationship
0: with Israel. You know, like yeah. Yeah, but now we're gonna now we're gonna use the heck out of that three D image.
1: That's really
2: right. Oh, <laughs> well, I okay. should I should mention. Uh, um, it comes. I, I bought it really from a colleague of mine. Um, in in other work that I've done, um, I worked for many years for a British perisal research organization called BICOM, uh which produces a, a journal called Fathom, um, and um, I was the founding deputy editor. My colleague uh, Professor Alan Johnson was the founding editor, uh, and uh, uh, when we started producing fathom which i recommend to to you and to all of your students um uh israel in 3d was kind of one of our mm. sort of editorial um guiding principles uh, oh, nice. so that's really where it comes from
0: so I'll, i'm going to put a link to that but for those who are just listening yeah. and not checking the links that i put um so and the name of your book which is available on amazon is
2: Yeah, that's a book. I mean, it's essentially my my doctoral thesis. Uh, It's called Blair, Labour and Palestine, Conflicting Views on Middle East Peace After 9-11. And since we discussed it, there's a challenge in the title because um, I chose to call it Blair, Labour and Palestine, but it was a dilemma. Um, I guess had I had more words, Mm. I would have (laughs) perhaps most accurately have termed it Blair, Labour and the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But there's a certain point where you have to kind of uh, be catchy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right.
3: Thanks so much. Well, thank you so much, thank Toby. Thank you.
0: And uh, we hope you'll come back again to discuss, now that we've gotten your, your whole sort of, uh, I don't want to say manifesto. That, yeah, that sounds, that sounds creepy saying manifesto these days. But uh, now that we have your perspective, I hope you'll, you'll come back to us for future discussions of these issues. With pleasure. It was nice talking to you both. Oh, awesome. Okay, great, great talking to you. Okay. Thanks so much. Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Mike. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. This has been JU Israel, the Teacher's Lounge Podcast. Please check out our website, juisrael.jerusalemu.org, for episodes, blog posts, and contact information. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever you use for podcasts. But you knew that, right? Uh, you can follow our Facebook page at the Teacher's Lounge Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at JU Israel yeah. Please keep in touch with us with questions, comments, feedback, and suggestions, and... If you know somebody who would enjoy a podcast in general or an episode in particular, we love it when people recommend us. Thank you, guys.